43, which been found for them by the fortunate conquest of Jamaica in 1655 by the Navy of the English Commonwealth. These conquests were not made without the aid of the buccaneers themselves. The taking and retaking of Tortuga by the French was always with the assistance of the roving community, and at the conquest of Jamaica the English Navy had the same influence in its favor. The V.04P.0655 buccaneers, in fact, constituted a mercenary navy, ready for employment against the power of Spain by any other nation, on condition of sharing the plunder, and they were noted for their daring, their cruelty and their extraordinary skill in seamanship. Their history now divides itself into three epochs. The first of these extends from the period of their rise to the capture of Panama by Morgan in 1671, during which time they were hampered neither by government aid nor, till near its close, by government restriction. The second, from 1671 to the time of their greatest power, 1685, when the scene of their operations was no longer merely the Caribbean, but principally the whole range of the Pacific from California to Chile. The third and last period extends from that year onwards, it was a time of disunion and disintegration, when the independence and rude honor of the previous periods had degenerated into unmitigated vice and brutality. It is chiefly during the first period that those leaders flourished whose names and doings have been associated with all that was really influential in the exploits of the buccaneers the most prominent being Mansfield and Morgan. The floating commerce of Spain had by the middle of the 17th century become utterly insignificant. But Spanish settlements remained, and in 1654 the first great expedition on land made by the buccaneers, though attended by considerable difficulties, was completed by the capture and sack of New Segovia, on the mainland of America, the Gulf of Venezuela, with its towns of Maracaibo and Gibraltar, were attacked and plundered under the command of a Frenchman named Lalanois, who performed, it is said, the office of executioner upon the whole crew of a Spanish vessel manned with 90 seamen. Such successes removed the buccaneers further and further from the pale of civilized society, fed their revenge, and inspired them with an avarice almost equal to that of the original settlers from Spain. Mansfield indeed, in 1664, conceived the idea of a permanent settlement upon a small island of the Bahamas, named New Providence, and Henry Morgan, a Welshman, intrepid and unscrupulous, joined him but the untimely death of Mansfield nipped in the bud the only rational scheme of settlement which seems at any time to have animated this wild community, and Morgan, now elected commander, swept the whole Caribbean, and from his headquarters in Jamaica led triumphant expeditions to Cuba and the mainland. He was leader of the expedition wherein Porto Bella, one of the best fortified ports in the West Indies, was surprised and plundered. This was too much for even the adverse European powers, and in 1670 a treaty was concluded between England and Spain, proclaiming peace and friendship among the subjects of the two sovereigns in the New World, formally renouncing hostilities of every kind. Great Britain was to hold all her possessions in the New World as her own property a remarkable concession on the part of Spain, and consented, on behalf of her subjects, to forbear trading with any Spanish port without license obtained. The treaty was very ill-observed in Jamaica, where the governor, Thomas Modiford 1620-1679, was in close alliance with the privateers, which was the official title of the buccaneers. He had already granted commissions to Morgan and others for a great attack on the Isthmus of Panama, the route by which the bullion of the South American mines was carried to Puerto Bella, to be shipped to Spain. The buccaneers to the number of 2,000 began by seizing Chagres and then marched to Panama in 1671, after a difficult journey on foot and in canoes, 
they found themselves nearing the shores of the South Sea and in view of the city. On the morning of the tenth day they commenced an engagement which ended in the rout of the defenders of the town. It was taken, and, accidentally or not, it was burnt. The sack of Panama was accompanied by great barbarities. The Spaniards had, however, removed the treasure before the city was taken. When the booty was divided, Morgan is accused of having defrauded his followers. It is certain that the share per man was small, and that many of the buccaneers died of starvation while trying to return to Jamaica. Modiford was recalled, and in 1672 Morgan was called home and imprisoned in the tower. In 1674 he was allowed to come back to the island as lieutenant governor with Lord Vaughan. He had become so unpopular after the expedition of 1671 that he was followed in the streets and threatened by the relations of those who had perished. During his later years he was active in suppressing the buccaneers who had now inconvenient claims on him. From 1671 to 1685 is the time of the greatest daring, prosperity and power of the buccaneers. The expedition against Panama had not been without its influence, notwithstanding their many successes in the Caribbean and on land, including a second plunder of Porto Bella. Their thoughts ran frequently on the great expedition across the Isthmus, and they pictured the South Sea as a far wider and more lucrative field for the display of their united power. In 1680 a body of marauders over 300 strong, well armed and provisioned, landed on the shore of Darien and struck across the country, and the cruelty and mismanagement displayed in the policy of the Spaniards towards the Indians were now revenged by the assistance which the natives eagerly rendered to the adventurers. They acted as guides during a difficult journey of nine days, kept the invaders well supplied with food, provided them with canoes, and only left them after the taking of the fort of Santa Maria, when the buccaneers were fairly embarked on a broad and safe river which emptied itself into the South Sea. With John Coxon as commander they entered the Bay of Panama, where rumor had been before them, and where the Spaniards had hastily prepared a small fleet to meet them, but the valor of the buccaneers won for them another victory, within a week they took possession of four Spanish ships, and now successes flowed upon them, the Pacific, hitherto free from their intrusion, showed many sail of merchant vessels, while on land opposition south of the Bay of Panama was of little avail, since few were acquainted with the use of firearms. Coxon and seventy men returned as they had gone, but the others, under Sawkins, Sharp and Walling, roamed north and south on islands and mainland, and remained for long ravaging the coast of Peru, never short of silver and gold, but often in want of the necessaries of life. They continued their practices for a little longer, then, evading the risk of recrossing the isthmus, they boldly cleared Cape Horn, and arrived in the Indies, again, in 1683. Numbers of them under John Cook departed for the South Sea by way of Cape Horn. On Cook's death his successor, Edward Davis, undoubtedly the greatest and most prudent commander who ever led the forces of the buccaneers at sea, met with a certain Captain Swan from England, and the two captains began a cruise which was disastrous to the Spanish trade in the Pacific. In 1685 they were joined in the Bay of Panama by large numbers of buccaneers who had crossed the Isthmus under Townley and others. This increased body of men required an enlarged measure of adventure, and this in a few months was supplied by the Viceroy of Peru. That officer, seeing the trade of the colony cut off, supply stopped, towns burned and raided, and property harassed by continual raids, resolved by vigorous means to put an end to it, but his aim was not easily accomplished. In the same year a Spanish fleet of 14 sail met, but did not engage, 10 buccaneer vessels which were found in the Bay of Panama. At this period the power of the buccaneers was at its height, 
but the combination was too extensive for its work, and the different nationality of those who composed it was a source of growing discord, nor was the dream of equality ever realized for any length of time. The immense spoil obtained on the capture of wealthy cities was indeed divided equally, but in the gambling and debauchery which followed, nothing was more common than that one half of the conquerors should find themselves on the morrow in most pressing want, and while those who had retained or increased their share would willingly have gone home, the others clamored for renewed attacks. The separation of the English and French buccaneers, who together presented a united front to the Spanish fleet in 1685, marks the beginning of the third and last epoch in their history. The brilliant exploits begun by the sack of Leon and Real Jovi.04 P.0656 by the English under Davis have, even in their variety and daring, a sameness which deprives them of interest, and the wonderful confederacy is now seen to be falling gradually to pieces. The skill of Davis at sea was on one occasion displayed in a seven days engagement with two large Spanish vessels, and the interest undoubtedly centers in him. Townley and Swan had, however, by this time left him, and after cruising together for some time, they, too, parted. In 1688 Davis cleared Cape Horn and arrived in the West Indies, while Swan's ship, the Signet, was abandoned as unseaworthy. After sailing as far as Madagascar, Townley had hardly joined the French buccaneers remaining in the South Sea ere he died, and the Frenchmen with their companions crossed New Spain to the West Indies, and thus the Pacific ravaged so long by this powerful and mysterious band of corsairs, was at length at peace. The West Indies had by this time become hot enough even for the banded pirates. They hung doggedly along the coasts of Jamaica and Santo Domingo, but their day was nearly over. Only once again at the siege of Carthagena did they appear great, but even then the expedition was not of their making, and they were mere auxiliaries of the French regular forces. After the treachery of the French commander of this expedition a spirit of unity and despairing energy seemed reawakened in them, but this could not avert and scarcely delayed the rapidly approaching extinction of the community. The French and English buccaneers could not but take sides in the war which had arisen between their respective countries in 1689. Thus was broken the bond of unity which had for three quarters of a century kept the subjects of the two nations together in schemes of aggression upon a common foe. In the short peace of 1697-1700 England and France were using all their influence, both in the old world and in the new, to ingratiate themselves into the favor of the King of Spain. With the resumption of hostilities in 1700 and the rise of Spain consequent upon the accession of the French claimant to the throne the career of the buccaneers was effectually closed, but the fall of the buccaneers is no more accounted for fully by these circumstances than is their rise by the massacre of the islanders of Santo Domingo. There was that in the very nature of the community which, from its birth, marked it as liable to speedy decline. The principles which bound the buccaneers together were, first the desire for adventure and gain, and, in the second place, hatred of the Spaniard. The first was hardly a sufficient bond of union, among men of different nationalities, when booty could be had nearly always by private venture under the colors of the separate European powers. Of greater validity was their second and great principle of union namely, that they warred not with one another, nor with every one, but with a single and a common foe, for while the buccaneer forces included English, French and Dutch sailors, and were complemented occasionally by bands of native Indians, there are few instances during the time of their prosperity and growth of their falling upon one another, and treating their fellows with the savagery which they exulted in displaying against the subjects of Spain, the exigencies, moreover, 
of their perilous career readily wasted their suddenly acquired gains. Settled labor, the warrant of real wealth, was unacceptable to those who live by promoting its insecurity. Regular trade though rendered attractive by smuggling and pearl gathering and similar operations which were spiced with risk, were open in vain to them, and in the absence of any domestic life, a hand-to-mouth system of supply and demand rooted out gradually the prudence which accompanies any mode of settled existence. In everything the policy of the buccaneers, from the beginning to the end of their career, was one of pure destruction, and was, therefore, ultimately suicidal. Their great importance in history lies in the fact that they opened the eyes of the world, and specially of the nations from whom these buccaneers had sprung, to the whole system of Spanish-American government and commerce the former in its rottenness, and the latter in its possibilities in other hands. From this, then, along with other causes, dating primarily from the helplessness and presumption of Spain, there arose the West Indian possessions of Holland, England and France, a work published at Amsterdam in 1678 entitled De American Chizzy Rufus, from the pen of a buccaneer named Exmolin, was translated into several European languages, receiving additions at the hands of the different translators. The French translation by Frenignares is named Histoire de Savantouriers qui Southeast sans signale dans les ins. The English edition is entitled The Buccaneers of America. Other works are Reynolds' History of the Settlements and Trade of the Europeans in the East and West Indies. Book X English Translation 1782, Dampier's Voyages, Geo. W. Thornbury's Monarchs of the Main, and C. 1855, Lionel Wafer's Voyage and Description of the Isthmus of America 1699, and the Historia de l'Isle Espanol, and C. and Historia at Description Generale de la Nouvelle France of Père Charlevoix. The statements in these works are to be received with caution. A really authentic narrative, however, is Captain James Burney's History of the Buccaneers of America London, 1816, The Calendar of State Papers, Colonial Series London, 1860 etc., contains much evidence for the history of the Buccaneers in the West Indies, THPUCCARI Serbo Croatian Bakker, a royal free town of Croatia Slavonia, Hungary, situated in the county of Madru versus Fiume, 7 meters Asi of Fiume, on a small bay of the Adriatic Sea, Pop. 1918-70. The Hungarian State Railway from Zakani Andagram terminates 21 2 meters from Bukhari. The harbor, though sometimes dangerous to approach, affords good anchorage to small vessels, owing to competition from Fiume. Bukhari lost the greater part of its trade during the 19th century. The staple industry is boat building, and there is an active coasting trade in fish, wine, wood and coal. The tiny fishery is of some importance. In the neighborhood of the town is the old castle of Bukharica, and farther south the flourishing little port of Portoray or Kraljevica, B-U-C-C-I-N-A more correctly B-U-C-I-N-A, G-R, Greek, Bukan, connected with Boca, Cheek, and G-R, Greek, Uzo, a brass wind instrument extensively used in the ancient Roman army. The Roman instrument consisted of a brass tube measuring some 11 to 12 feet in length, of narrow cylindrical bore, and played by means of a cup-shaped mouthpiece. The tube is bent round upon itself from the mouthpiece to the bell in the shape of a broad C and is strengthened by means of a bar across the curve, which the performer grasps while playing. In order to steady the instrument, the bell curves over his head or shoulder as in the modern helicon. Three Roman buccinas were found among the ruins of Pompeii and are now deposited in the museum at Naples. V.C. Modelon. 
of Brussels has made a facsimile of one of these instruments, it is in G and has almost the same harmonic series as the French horn and the trumpet, the buccina, the cornucy horn, and the tuba were used as signal instruments in the Roman army and camp to sound the four night watches hence known as buccina prima, secunda, and C, to summon them by means of the special signal known as classicum, and to give orders. Frontinus relates that a Roman general, who had been surrounded by the enemy, escaped during the night by means of the stratagem of leaving behind him a buccinator trumpeter, who sounded V.04P.0657 the watches throughout the night. Vigetes gives brief descriptions of the three instruments, which suffice to establish their identity, the tuba, he says, is straight, the buccina is a bronze bent in the form of a circle, the buccina in respect of its technical construction and acoustic properties, was the ancestor of both trumpet and trombone, the connection is further established by the derivation of the words sackbut and on the German for trombone from buccina, the relation was fully recognized in Germany during the 15th and 16th centuries, as to translations of Vigetes, published at Ulm in 1470, and at Augsburg in 1534, clearly demonstrate, Bucina dies is die trumet oder pusan, the bucina is the trumpet or trombone, and, bucina is die trumpet die word off and einschagen, the bucina is the trumpet which is drawn out and in. A French translation by Jean de Paris, 1488, renders the passage chap. The ayat. 5 thus, trump established long day et droit a, bezine established court et reflectest en limis nisi com party de cercle. On Trajan's column the tuba, the cornu and the buccina are distinguishable. Other illustrations of the buccina may be seen in François Mazoisel's Ruins to Pompeii Paris, 1824-1838. Point if, place should be I, figure 1, and in J. N. von Wilmoski sign Roemiski Villa Zunanic Bonn, 1865, place Z. I. Mosaics, where the buccinator is accompanied on the hydraulis. The military buccina described is a much more advanced instrument than its prototype the buccina marina. A primitive trumpet in the shape of a conical shell, often having a spiral twist, which in poetry is often called conca. The buccina marina is frequently depicted in the hands of Triton's macrobuzi 8, or of sailors, as for instance on terracotta lamp shown by G.P. Bellori Lucernate Hedrum Sepulchrales Iconici, 1702, the I. 12. The highly imaginative writer of the apocryphal letter of St. Jerome to Dardanus also has a word to say concerning the buccina among the Semitic races, book of Ocator to Bipod Hebreus, Dine Perdamin Utilon and Buccina Dicitur. After the fall of the Roman Empire the art of bending metal tubes was gradually lost, and although the buccina survived in Europe both in name and in principle of construction during the Middle Ages, it lost forever the characteristic curve like a C, which it possessed in common with the cornu an instrument having a conical bore of wider caliber, although we regard the buccina as essentially Roman, an instrument of the same type, but probably straight and of kindred name, was widely known and used in the East, in Persia, Arabia and among the Semitic races, after a lapse of years during which records are almost wanting, the buccina reappeared all over Europe as the Bizim, Bizim, Puzin, Buzon, Pusun, Pozon, Busnasloth, and C. Whether it was a Roman survival or a reintroduction through the Moors of Spain in the West and the Byzantine Empire in the East, we have no records to show. An 11th century mural painting representing the Last Judgment in the Cathedral of S. Angelo in Formes near Capua, shows the angels blowing the last trump on Byzines, 
there are two distinct forms of the Byzine which may be traced during the Middle Ages, by a long straight tube figure two consisting of three to five joints of narrow cylindrical bore, the last joint alone being conical and ending in a pummel-shaped bell, precisely as in the curved buxina figure one, to a long straight cylindrical tube of somewhat wider bore than the Byzine, ending in a wide bell curving out abruptly from the cylindrical tube figure three. The history of the development of the trumpet, the sackbut and the trombone from the buxina will be found more fully treated under those headings, for the part played by the buxina in the evolution of the French horn sea horn. KSC Catalogue Descriptive Gantt, 1880, page 330, and illustration, volume I, 1896, page 30, live EVI, 35, shh, 15, prop, V4, 63, tac, and, XV, 30, Vigetis, Dere Military, EI, 22, EI, 5, Polyb, I, 365, Shift, 3, 7, Stratagematicon, I5, Second 17, for another instance see Caesar, Com, Bell, Sith, EI, 35, Vigetis, Opposite, EI, 5, Idem, EI, 7, Idem, EI, 5, a reprint edited by Ulysses A. Robert has been published by the SOC. De Saint-Chen's Texts France et Paris, 1897. C. Conrad Sicoris. Di Reliefs Dear Triensal. Three volumes. Of text and two portfolios of Heliogravures Berlin, 1896. And C. B. D. I. Place X. Buxina and 2 B. Place B. I. Buxina. Place Alx. I. Buxina and 2 Cornua. Place XX. Cornu. And C. Dot. Or W. Froehner. Le Cologne de Trajan Paris, 1872, Volume I Place Shi, Li, Tomi, Place Oxby, Tomi, Place Shif, and C, CFX Kraus, Diwan Jamil de von San Angelo Informis, in Yarbuk Dear KGL, Price, Kunstsemmel, 1893, Place IBUCCLUCH, Dukes of the substantial origin of the Ducal House of the Scots of Buckluch dates back to the large grants of lands in Scotland to Sir Walter Scott of Kirkard and Buckluch, a border chief, by James I.I., in consequence of the fall of the 8th Earl of Douglas 1452, but the family traced their descent back to a Sir Richard of Scott 1240-1285. The estate of Buckluch is in Selkirkshire. Sir Walter Scott of Branksholm and Buckluch D1550 to distinguished himself at the Battle of Pinky 1547, and furnished material for his later namesake's famous poem, The Lay of the Last Minstrel, and his great-grandson Sir Walter 1565-1611 was created Lord Scott of Buckluch in 1606, and Earldom followed in 1619, the second Earl's daughter in 1651-1732, who succeeded him as a countess in her own right. Married in 1663 the famous Duke of Monmouth QV who was then created first Duke of Buckluch, and her grandson Francis became second Duke. The latter's son Henry 1746-1812 became third Duke, and in 1810 succeeded also, on the death of William Douglas, fourth Duke of Queensbury, to that dukedom as well as its estates and other honors, according to the entail executed by his own great-grandfather, the second Duke of Queensbury, in 1706. He married the Duke of Montague's daughter, and was famous for his generosity and benefactions. His son Charles William Henry D. 1819, grandson Walter Francis Scott 1806-1884, and great-grandson William Henry Walter Montague Douglas Scott 1831, succeeded in turn as fourth, 
5th and 6th Dukes of Buckleach and 6th, 7th, and 8th Dukes of Queensbury. The 5th Duke was Lord Privy Seal 1840-1846, and President of the Council 1846. It was he who at a cost of over L500.000 made the harbour at Granton, near Edinburgh. He was President of the Highland and Agricultural Society, the Society of Antiquaries and of the British Association. The 6th Duke sat in the House of Commons as Conservative MP for Midlothian, 1853-1868 and 1874-1880, his wife, a daughter of the 1st Duke of Abercorn, held the office of Mistress of the Roads, see Sir W. Fraser, The Scots of Buckleach 1878, B.U.C.N.D.A.U.R.L., Toro, The State Gallery of the Dogs of Venice, on which, every year on Ascension Day up to 1789, they put into the Adriatic in order to perform the ceremony of wetting the sea. The name Bucentoral is derived from the eel, Bucento di Oro, Golden Bark, Latinized in the Middle Ages as Bucentorus on the analogy of a supposed gr. Greek, Bucentorus, Oxcentor from Greek, Bucan Greek, Cantorus. This led to the explanation of the name as derived from the head of an ox having served as the galley's figurehead. This derivation island however, fanciful, the name Bucentaurus is unknown in ancient mythology, and the figurehead of the Bucentaurs, of which representations have come down to us, is the Lion of Saint Mark. V.04p.0658 The name Bucentaur seems, indeed, to have been given to any great and sumptuous Venetian galley, Ducanch Gloss. S.V. Bucentaurus quotes from the Chronicle of the Dutch Andrea Don Lodi 1454, Cumino Artificioso et Solemne Bucentauro. Super quo venetus ad es clementine, quo jam pervenere principalier et solemnier bucentorus cum conciliaries, and see, the last and most magnificent of the bucentors, built in 1729, was destroyed by the French in 1798 for the sake of its golden decorations, remains of it are preserved at Venice in the Museo Civico Corps and in the Arsenal, in the latter there is also a fine model of it, the marriage of the Adriatic, or more correctly, of the sea, Sposalizio del March was a ceremony symbolizing the maritime dominion of Venice. The ceremony, established about AD 1000 to commemorate the Dutch or single quote as conquest of Dalmatia, was originally one of supplication and placation, Ascension Day being chosen as that on which the Dutch had set out on his expedition. The form it took was a solemn procession of boats, headed by the Dutch's Maristanave. Afterwards the Bucentor from 1311 out to sea by the Lido port, a prayer was offered that, for us and all who sail there on the sea may become and quiet, whereupon the Dutch and the others were solemnly aspersed with holy water, the rest of which was thrown into the sea while the priests chanted, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. To this ancient ceremony a sacramental character was given by Pope Alexander III in 1177. In return for the services rendered by Venice in the struggle against the Emperor Frederick I the Pope drew a ring from his finger and, giving it to the Dutch, bade him cast such a one into the sea each year on Ascension Day, and so wed the sea. Henceforth the ceremonial, instead of placatory and expiatory, became nuptial. Every year the Dutch dropped a consecrated ring into the sea, and with the words despons amused he, there we wed thee. Sea declared Venice and the sea to be indissolubly one C.H.F. Brown, Venice, London, 1893, pages 69, 110, B.U.C.A.P.H.A.L.U.S.J.R., Greek, Bucophilos, the favorite Thracian horse of Alexander the Great, which died in 326 B.C. either of wounds received in the battle on the Hydaspes, 
or of old age, in commemoration Alexander built the city of Bucephala the site of which is almost certainly to be identified with a mound on the bank of the river opposite the modern Jilam. See especially Arian V20, other stories in Plutarch. Alex. 6. Curtis by. 8. For the identification of Bucephala. Vincent A. Smith. Early Hist. Of India Second Education 1908. Pages 65. 66 Note. Bucer or Budesier. Martin 1491-1551. German Protestant Reformer. Was born in 1491 at Schlettstadt in Alsace. In 1506 he entered the Dominican order, and was sent to study at Heidelberg. There he became acquainted with the works of Erasmus and Luther, and was present at a disputation of the latter with some of the Romanist doctors. He became a convert to the Reformed opinions, abandoned his order by papal dispensation in 1521, and soon afterwards married a nun. In 1522 he was pastor at Landstall in the Palatinate, and traveled hither and thither propagating the Reformed doctrine. After his excommunication in 1523 he made his headquarters at Strasbourg, where he succeeded Matthew Zell. Henry VII of England asked his advice in connection with the divorce from Catherine of Aragon, on the question of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Bucher's opinions were decidedly Zwinglian, but he was anxious to maintain church unity with the Lutheran party, and constantly endeavored, especially after Zwingli's death, to formulate a statement of belief that would unite Lutheran. South German and Swiss reformers, hence the charge of ambiguity and obscurity which has been laid against him. In 1548 he was sent for to Augsburg to sign the agreement, called the interim, between the Catholics and Protestants. His stout opposition to this project exposed him to many difficulties, and he was glad to accept Cranmer's invitation to make his home in England. On his arrival in 1549 he was appointed Regius Professor of Divinity at Cambridge, Edward V.I and the protector Somerset showed him much favor and he was consulted as to the revision of the Book of Common Prayer, but on the 27th of February 1551 he died, and was buried in the university church, with great state, in 1557, by Mary's commissioners, his body was dug up and burnt, and his tomb demolished, it was subsequently reconstructed by order of Elizabeth, Booker is said to have written 96 treatises, among them a translation and exposition of the Psalms and a work Dear No Christi. His name is familiar in English literature from the use made of his doctrines by Milton in his divorce treatises. A collected edition of his writings has never been published. A volume known as the Thomas Anglicanus Basel, 1577 contains those written in England. C.J.W. Baum, Capital and Butzer Strasbourg, 1860, A. Son, Martin Butzer 1891, and the articles in the dict. Nat. By Og. By A. W. Award. And in Heshog Hawks Real Encyclopedia by Paul Gruenberg. B.U.C.H. Christian Leopold von. Baron 1774-1853. German geologist and geographer. A member of an ancient and noble Prussian family. Was born at Stolpe in Pomerania on the 26th of April 1774. In 1790-1793 he studied at the mining school of Freiburg under Werner one of his fellow students there being Alexander von Humboldt. He afterwards completed his education at the universities of Halle and Goetengen. His versa China Mineralogisch and Beschreibung von Landeck Breslau, 1797 was translated into French Paris, 1805, and into English as attempt at a mineralogical description of Landeck Edinburgh, 1810, 
He also published in 1802 and Finer Geognostisch and Beschreibung von Schlesien Geognostische Bedeutung in Afreisen durch Deutschland in Italien. Van Dyke was at this time a zealous upholder of the Neptunian theory of his illustrious master. In 1797 he met Humboldt at Salzburg, and with him explored the geological formations of Styria, and the adjoining Alps. In the spring of the following year, von Buch extended his excursions into Italy, where his faith in the Neptunian theory was shaken. In his previous works he had advocated the aqueous origin of basaltic and other formations. In 1799 he paid his first visit to Vesuvius, and again in 1805 he returned to study the volcano. Accompanied by Humboldt and de Lussac, they had the good fortune to witness a remarkable eruption, which supplied von Buch with data for refuting many erroneous ideas then entertained regarding volcanoes. In 1802 he had explored the extinct volcanoes of Auvergne, the aspect of the Puy de Dome, with its cone of trachyte and its strata of basaltic lava, induced him to other. 